The following transmission contains unencrypted instances of explicit language. Mature audiences are cleared to proceed. Shall we begin? In September of 1933, Richard Sorge became the Tokyo correspondent for Germany's most prestigious newspaper. Unbeknownst to either the Germans or the Japanese, this was in fact the first small step in an intelligence operation by the Soviet Union, which would run for eight years. I'm Todd. And I'm Dave, and we like to talk about spy movies. 2003's Spy Sorge was meant to be master director Masahiro Shinoda's final film. It is the film he wanted to be remembered by. Does this film make the case that Richard Sorge was the greatest spy of all time? We're going to discuss that in this episode of Spies Like Us. David, we have come here to talk about uh, uh, this 2003 film, Japanese film, uh, covering events broadly from 1931 to 1941. Uh, Featured agency, although I don't think they get named too much, uh, but I believe Sergei is working for the GRU. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're going to see also the uh, Japanese Kempeitai and some brief appearances from the KGB uh sprinkled through and and at the end of the movie um I, have we gotten a chance to talk about the GRU before on this podcast I'm not sure uh a little bit but we haven't like dived too deep into it um but they're like kind of like a military offshoot or an offshoot from the military intelligence or something yeah like yeah well i mean i know that we have talked about the fact that like most modern spy agencies uh, uh, had their um, origin in military intelligence. Right. Such as the CIA, for instance, coming out of the, coming out of the OSS. And we've seen other examples of that. This, the GRU would be an example of that. GRU was the uh, Soviet military intelligence agency uh, from, uh, you know, back from world war one, I think is, is when they were founded. Uh, they were mostly concerned with spying and counter spying. The KGB is is the the other kind of spy agency, which is the one that uh, like a secret police type that is primarily uh, like more um, more political in nature. Uh-huh. Like the KGB was specifically if if I'm if I've got my facts straight here or at least what they were catering to was, was the communist party uh-huh. and, and, and protecting like Stalin's interests. Um, they were mostly like the KGB were mostly going around, like rooting out uh, suspected traitors within the Soviet union and, and, oh, po- okay. and political opponents. Um okay. But they also did engage with foreign communists and sympathizers to advance the party interests. The uh, so the GRU and the KGB did often clash. Uh, there was bad blood between those organizations and competition for the funds and attention of the top leaders. Um, you just put a button on it for right now because I mean that was one thing that uh, we're going to hopefully get to. Uh, in this podcast is like, uh, you know, the we we see some Soviet intelligence guys 
pulling some shit that is definitely not in Richard Sorge's interests. Those guys are the KGB. The guys that he's working for are the GRU. Um, that said the, uh, the chem pay if I'm pronouncing that right, what do you think? Chem pay If I'm reading this, uh, Romaji correctly, chem pay Yeah. <laughs> Wiki tells us that that was the military police arm of the Imperial Japanese army from, uh, 1881 to 1945. So I guess right up till the end of uh, World War II, uh, they were both a conventional military police and also a secret police force in the same keeping as like what we just described the KGB as being. Mm-hmm. As in like, uh, you know, part of your task is to root out uh, unbelievers amongst right. us. Um but they also operated in Japanese-occupied territories, uh, arresting and killing anyone that was suspected of being anti-Japanese. So those are the agencies uh, we've got here. Um, this is uh, uh, a Japan. Well, it's a Japanese film, and I don't see any evidence that it ever got a U.S. release. But it is primarily in English or a lot of it. A lot of it is. Yeah. Um, It it was actually mostly English uh, considering it was a Japanese film. Yeah. Which I thought, I I thought was interesting. Um, The version that we watched is, is the version that's available for free uh, on YouTube, uh, which uh, is, um, it's it's the Japanese parts are subtitled, but not always. Yeah, uh, I, I noticed like it looks like it was fan pub because we couldn't find anywhere to be able to watch this, and that was like the only place we could find. And so it seems like this was kind of like a fan sub. And um, I have some friends that do uh, subtitling and like translations for stuff, and. There's like a whole software and thing for that. So I think I, I, I'm not too upset about it, but they probably just had timing issues with uh, keeping the subs up while people were talking. Um, Cause I, I caught enough of the Japanese where it was like, Oh, okay. They just wrote the whole sentence and it didn't stay up while they were talking. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And I caught some dialogue scenes where like, just there would be like one, you know, a, you know, statement from a character that just, didn't get a subtitle. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but apparently, uh, you know, apparently intended mostly for a Japanese audience. It is a long film at three hours. I would call it mostly a history lesson of Japan's March into world war two told from the perspective of the real life Russian spies and their Japanese co-conspirators uh, that were planted in Tokyo to uh, try to suss out like what what was going on in Japan mm-hmm. uh, at the time. Um, so long movie with a lot of characters. I can't be a hundred percent sure, um, but I think all of the principals. I think everyone in the film that has a name is probably like a real person. Um, 
as far as I could tell. When, when I kind of went through most of the main names, they were all had their own like kind of historical wiki. And yeah. uh, so they, it, it looks like, I don't know that there are any fictional characters. A lot, a lot of times in historical films, you'll get like combinations of characters. But I think this was kind of, um, I think you had said that it was kind of like checking off historical boxes throughout the film. I did and feel that. I did feel that. So, uh, yeah, I'm pre- I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't really see any reason to think anybody was kind of fictionally made up. Because there wasn't much of a story uh, you know, usually you get like historical films where it's like they try and Hollywood it up to try and make it interesting for people. Uh-huh. I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I, I enjoyed it because uh, the, the, it kind of bothers. Like, uh, I don't know. It's, I always think of the Musashi trilogy. There's like a three part film about Musashi Miyamoto. And uh, they had this whole love triangle going on, which was like never happened even if you know anything about musashi and it really bothered me you know and it was like highly kind of or i guess like everything was like a big story and a big you know like um so they didn't put anything in like that in this at all so i don't i don't see any reason to think that anybody was fictional who is uh miyamoto is that the five rings guy yeah that's the one that wrote the book of five rings and if you know anything about him I don't think he would have ever been in lo- involved in a love triangle. The, <laughs> not the guy not, was not from what I've read. <laughs> yeah. Not only he refused to bathe because he was afraid he was going to get assassinated. He would only bathe if his like most trusted student was there to watch. And he uh, didn't trust anybody other than like his one student and maybe his like other one or something like that. There's no way he would have been like, you know, fallen for this one girl while this other girl fell for him. And it was, yeah, it was, it was like a whole part of that story that was only there just to make it fun for the audience. And to be honest, it kind of bothers me. Like when, it, when you're like, I'm going to go see a movie about history and the, the meat of the movie is just telling this random story and it's just kind of sprinkled with some historical elements versus Spice Sorge was like, it was like watching those uh, videos in history class in high school that were like reenactments, only a very high production of that and much more structured and put together. So I actually kind of enjoyed that about this because I, I got to learn about a piece of history that I was completely unaware of. Like, you're the one that told me about this movie. And I was like, what? Like, we totally got to do this. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, uh, dude, that's a great segue into um... – so, yeah, I mean, we've established, like, as far as I can tell, and, you know, I looked at the, you know, the Richard Sorge wiki and the facts in the wiki and the facts in the movie definitely uh, line up pretty tightly. Um, who's Richard Sorge, people might be wondering. Um, he is supposedly, and this is surprising to us because, you know, we, we like to think we know something about some famous spies in history, but this guy was a complete mystery to us uh but he's apparently very famous probably a lot more well known in japan i just have to guess at that yeah Uh, i think probably the reason he's not well known to western audiences like ourselves is because his operation really didn't touch directly on western interests 
Uh, yeah, no. I think, yeah, not at you all. know, we get taught the story of World War II and the History Channel is primarily, you know, through a Western perspective. And what, but that's what excited us about this uh, was, yeah, getting to see like, well, yeah, well, I mean, what were, what were the Soviets and the Japanese thinking about each other? Never minding, you know, what, what the U.S. Um, perspective or involvement was. Yeah, the, the U.S. wasn't even touched on. They were kind of mentioned a couple times. But I, I, I really enjoyed learning about kind of what was going on in Tokyo and China between the Germans, Russians, and Japanese. You know, the, I think Germany is the only Western force that was really a part of the story. Like, I, I think like Churchill might've been mentioned once and they didn't even really talk about what England was doing. It was all about like, you know, cause the Japan was ally where it was part of the axis. So they were like teaming up with the Nazis. So that's like a big part of world war two. So we got mm -hmm. that whole perspective. And then Russia was one of the allies, you know? And so there's the whole, and Russia is like kind of on Japan's doorstep and like bordering China, you know, so that, that's like a huge deal for that time period of history. So I, th I think I, I, we, I think we both were really excited to kind of get a, a whole nother kind of what it magnifying glass of like this part of history. Yeah, that we usually with, don't get. Yeah, yeah. Definitely looking at it from the other side of the globe. Mm -hmm. um, it is, um, yeah, uh, and I and I want to get back to some of that, uh, some of those aspects of of what we're going to see in the film i mean you say like yeah the the uh we say the movie covers events from 1931 to 1941 it's near the end of that that japan is actually actually going to uh formalize its alliance with germany and italy um what the what our Russian protagonist is really there trying to suss out is like, where, where are they going? What are they thinking? And we're going to have a lot to talk about uh, in that, but um, let's, uh, let's wrap up some, some context of the, like, you know, the film itself mm -hmm. uh, before we get there. Um, it is the final film from Masahiro Shinoda who also directed uh, Samurai Spy in 1965. Uh, one of his earlier films, of course, we did. Which, which we covered. Definitely go back and check out our episode on that. Covered, mass, uh, covered Samurai Spy, for sure. Uh, yeah. You know, there's a 36-year difference between the two films, and they are quite different. If, yeah, if, absolutely. If you, yeah, it's not, it's not a case of, like, I could have guessed these were the same director. This is definitely uh, a case of, of two very different movies. Um, as we discussed in our episode, that movie was um, that movie Samurai Spy was kind of like a layering on of a Cold War perspective. It being made in 1965 onto a period in the 17th century uh, that marked the beginning of the Tokugawa period. Mm-hmm. And this is more of a, like, pre-Cold War. This is definitely like, a, you know, it, it actually just tiptoes up to the beginning of World War II, in a way. Uh, yeah. Kind of film. 
was a financial failure. It, uh, from what I can see, it pulled in uh, $5 million against a $16 million budget. Wow. Actually, am I now I'm now I'm looking at those numbers and I'm saying, wait a second. This doesn't look like a $16 million movie. This looks higher than that. <laughs> even even for 2003. Would would I and I'm not I'm not expert in these kind of judgment calls, you know. I don't really know what it costs to make movies, but let's let's put an asterisk on that. I might have yeah. I might have gotten a a bad a bad wiki page. <laughs> or, or <laughs> yeah, that is because historical pieces tend to be way more expensive. Because they they not only like you got to get costuming made from back then, you got to get cars, you got to get buildings, you got to get. Yeah, I would think that. I mean, maybe it's a lot less expensive to make a movie in Japan. Well, uh, that could be true too. The Japanese version of the Academy Awards, though. Gave it pretty much all the nominations. Um, gave it uh, nominated for Best Picture, Best Film, Best Director, Best Screenplay, Best Cinematography. Uh, the only award that it actually won was uh, Art Direction, hmm. which I can give a nod to. I did like the production yeah. value of the film quite a bit. Um, it was also nominated for Best Music Score. I'm going to call that a head scratcher for me. Uh, I thought it was bad. <laughs> Compared for 2003, yeah. I don't, I, I'm a little surprised they got a nomination for that. Yeah, I thought the score was dull. I, I wrote, I specifically wrote, these are my notes, dull, heavy-handed, unimaginative, and overly loud. <laughs> and I'll I'll stick I'll stick with all of those. I thought I thought this was I thought the score was the lowest the the worst part about this film. Uh I, I just the the music the needle drops were iffy the 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 score like felt like overly dramatic in places where I didn't think it needed to be. I think a much more subtle touch would have worked better for me. Yeah, it felt like the scores from the old films where it was just really loud and like, hey, this is how you're supposed to feel. Listen to this music. You know, I, I definitely agree with you on that. Okay. I noted I there was a single source, an essay on uh, this movie where someone was making the case that it was a propaganda piece uh, for a German TV network that they, they, they claimed, and this is, I only have the single source for this, um, and I don't exactly remember what it was, but they claimed that the film was financed almost completely by a German TV network, which as a, uh, like, if you did, let's see, if we did imagine this as a propaganda piece, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to function very well. I mean, if anything, it's a, it would be a propaganda piece for Russia, I mean, the yeah. Russians are looking like the heroes in this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Japanese are put in a very bad light, I would say. Yeah. And the the Nazis don't come across as especially competent. Right. <laughs> so I'm not sure what would be accomplished by, by a, well, I mean, maybe it was financed by a German TV network and 
and then they didn't get exactly what they thought they were paying for. I think but the that, big takeaway is very nihilistic. So if it's a propaganda film, it's for German nihilism. That that would be like the only thing I could think of uh, considering kind of the big, you know, message at the end. Uh, I, I don't know. Yeah. Can, can you put, put just a little more color on that? What do you, what do you mean nihilistic? I mean, it's, it's, I guess it's, I mean, the movie is kind of fate fatalistic at least. Right. In but the- it's, it, you know, him with his, con, you know, that confession scene with his like Japanese girlfriend, by the way, Sorge has many girlfriends. Uh, oh, by the way, we didn't even get to. Are we going to talk about the cast? Or should it, no, I, maybe I should say it now? Uh, Sorge is played by yet another. We got another Game of Thrones star on uh, one of our podcast episodes. Sorge is played by um, crap. What's his name? Uh, uh, Ian. Uh, well, now it might be Ian, but uh, Ian. it's it's definitely spelled with an extra extra I in there. It's I A I N. Glenn. Ian Glenn. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, some of you who watch Game of Thrones might have known him as, uh, uh, Jorah Mormont, um, you know, Sir Friendzone. Uh, but, uh, I'm only bringing that up because he definitely was the ladies' man in this. Uh, he had a lot of girlfriends. But, um, back to the nihilistic point. Um, there's no, that. No, 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 Let's talk, let's talk about Glenn for a second because I had some notes. Um, he, I liked him. I yeah, thought, I thought I, he did great. He's a I, great, fantastic actor. I thought he was uh, uh, perfect in this film. And uh, when I look at him, I'm going to tell you, like, what I'm looking at, I feel like, is a blend of Roger Moore and Brian Cranston. Oh, yeah, yeah. I and can see that. I, I, I don't know. I just had this note where I felt like if he had been born 50 years earlier, I think mm-hmm. he would have been a really good James Bond. I definitely think I can see that. I definitely I think definitely he's channeling James Bond and uh-huh. I think he's doing it really well. And yeah. I I think he's doing it a lot better. Like, you know, again, if you could put him in a time machine, send him back to 1960s and make him a James Bond, I think I would have responded very well uh to, Absolutely. to his portrayal. And he wasn't role. trying to play James Bond. He was playing like a very competent realistic type of James, but I mean, what is he like a quadruple agent? A lot of the time. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. 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 Uh, but the point I wanted to make about the nihilism, uh, how we got sidetracked was he has a lot of girlfriends and a wife back. She's in Berlin, right? I think. No, she's, no at the time uh, she's in Moscow. Oh, okay. That's right. She's so she's in Moscow. Well, that explains that one scene then for me. Uh, but uh, yeah, he had, like a bunch of girlfriends in Tokyo and one of them was Japanese and there's like a confession scene with her and it, and he kind of feels defeated. Like he didn't really accomplish anything. And like, you know, people are going to be at war. There's never going to be any peace. You know, the, the only kind of, you know, towards the end where he's like talking to the prosecutor, he feels like he didn't accomplish anything. And the prosecutor, the Japanese prosecutor is like, well, Russia's safe. So you, you, you had a hand in that, but it wasn't like, it wasn't like it ended with him with like this wonderful life accomplishment. He kind of ended his life kind of depressed and felt that he, he got a lot of people in trouble and executed and arrested and 
thrown in prison for what, you know, he didn't really do anything. Um, is kind of what I got. So if, if this is a propaganda piece, I, I don't see it as propaganda for nationalism more so much more as just a really heavy nihilism of just everything's going to be war. And, you know, even this super slick spy can't really get anywhere, but I, I like how you put it more fatalistic. The powers that be are going to become the powers that be. And he just was kind of like a, um, what's it called? Like a chauffeur, I guess, you know, uh, or like an usher. He kind of helped usher in what was happening, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, I think, I think his big goal was to help spread communism, but what he did was prevent the spread of fascism, you know, which is a, a big accomplishment, but it wasn't particularly his accomplishment. And he got a lot of people in a lot of big trouble. Well, and he did, I mean, he did, like, his operation lasted successfully for seven years, which I think is part of what uh, people put a lot of credit to him for. So even though eventually it ended, you know, and he was caught and hung, and, uh, yeah, his uh, compatriots met bad ends. Um, Yeah, there's also the... There's also the thing, you know, especially when I was looking at the trade craft of this film, which we're really getting close to the briefing room, but um, I think it's I think it's noteworthy to what I want to say is that the trade craft in this film is not especially mm, daring or or imaginative or elaborate by <laughs> Cold War standards, right? You know, this is an earlier era before that real like dance of like the, you know, the whatchamacallit, the wilderness of mirrors uh, had had really uh, come about. I'm not certain. I'm not certain Sorge uh, would have been a as nearly as successful in the 60s or 70s <laughs> as he was <laughs> in the four, in the 40s. Right. Uh, you know, it was kind of like I think he was. I think he was doing this kind of shit that like nobody was expecting. I mean, the the Nazis and the Japanese just really don't seem to be like uh, looking out for this kind of operation in their midst. Well, I know? think that's kind of what the issue was with the establishment of the CIA because World War II intelligence was a lot of intercepting communications. Right. And code breaking, you know, the whole Alan Turing thing and uh, the the, you know, with all the radio communications and intercepting those radio communications and the subway, the subway, the submarine spy vessels and the ship spy vessels, you know, and stuff like that. Um, You know, I think the the reason why the Cold War had happened is because Russia was so ahead of planting a lot of deep, you know, uh, moles or, you know, spies all over the world while the rest of the world was just trying to, um, you know, manufacture tech and production and, and focus more on more of an overt war. And while that was happening, you know, Russian intelligence was planting spies everywhere. Um, and I, th- I like, that's kind of what led into the birth of the CIA as well as the cold war. So, I mean, yeah, nobody's really painted uh, in a very competent light as far as intelligence in this story. 
other than Sorge and his team kind of. And yeah, you're right. It's not like a lab. You know, your point about how it's not like super elaborate. It kind of makes me feel like we were taught when we, when we did the company, those both episodes where we were kind of talking about how they kind of had to put in, we really enjoyed it because of how much tradecraft was in it and how legitimate it was, but there wasn't that much of a story because they were just trying to tie all these big historical moments together mm-hmm. with sure. this one character who, right. Right. This made me feel like it was using like very realistic tradecraft, which can oftentimes be pretty boring. You know what I mean? And that's kind of what I liked about it. So it was, it's kind of following this guy's life, but it wasn't like unbelievable. Like with the company where you have this one character that is in all of the biggest moments in like, like cold war history, you know, like uh, I, I, you know, so I kind of liked how this was more drawn out um, and, and, kind of like checked those historical boxes and we got to kind of see a a little bit more of what I I guess kind of the life is like. Um, But yeah, you're right. You're not really on the edge of your seat at all. It's, it's not like, yeah, it's not like, Oh, there's this big double cross. It's, it's kind of like, well, no one's paying attention. So. (laughs) Right. It is very much (laughs) like, I mean, he's, he's operating in plain fucking sight. Yeah. Uh, as far as I can tell, um, yeah, I'm burning to get to the to the briefing room, but I want to I want to say before we get there. Uh, so this Richard Sorge guy, as you know, as we're uh, and maybe the audience knows some of the story, and maybe they've never heard it before, uh, but he is uh, considered a titan amongst people in the know in in the world of espionage. Uh, I've got uh, I've got a bunch of quotes. They they're they're mind blowing to me. Uh, the amount of praise that he gets. Uh, Douglas MacArthur regarded his work as a devastating example of brilliant espionage. Mm-hmm. Kim Philby said his work was impeccable. Ian Fleming said Sorge was the man whom I regard as the most formidable spy in history. Tom Clancy echoes that Richard Sorge was the best spy of all time. This guy, Frederick Forsyth, the spies in history who can save from their graves, the information I supplied to my masters for better or worse altered the history of our planet can be counted on the fingers of one hand. Richard Sorge is in that group. And, uh, um, <laughs> Uh, we're gonna we're gonna be giving our we're gonna be uh, getting back to this and and coming <laughs> back at the end to say like whether or not we feel the film makes this case successfully or not. Uh, but the last one I want to mention is that uh, actually the the chief prosecutor that uh, obtained Sergei's death sentence, who we will see in the movie as a character. Uh, his, his quote that Wiki has is, uh, in my whole life, I have never met anyone as great as he was. Wow. So we're definitely set up. If, if we're going by Wiki, we're set up to see some really amazing shit, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Last. And, and as, as such, you know, uh, his his espionage work and his story has been the subject of many, many books, many movies, many television series, uh-huh. uh, going, going way back. There's uh, I don't know. There's a, uh, 
I, I think there was a 1965 film like Richard Sorge, Who Are You Really? <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> uh, the mo- and the most recent uh, version of his story was a Russian TV series launched in 2019. So, uh, yeah, it's he's a guy that I'd never heard of. But if you look at it, like a lot of people around the world really, really, really dig this guy. Let's uh, let's hit the briefing room and Sounds see what good. we think about how this movie, whether or not this movie, uh, I don't know, uh, how would we put it? Like if there's, well, there is a statue of Sergei, you know, in Russia somewhere, but uh, you know, does this movie, is this movie like a proper statue of this supposedly Titan of the spy world? Retinal scan complete. Validating security clearance. Clearance granted. You may now enter the briefing room. So one thing that uh, occurred to me uh, while watching this movie was uh, something I had learned from Dan Carlin's uh, Hardcore History uh, Supernova in the East series, uh, which he just finally put out his, uh, his final episode on. I'm in the middle of it. Um, that, that he, he talks a lot about like, uh, you know, the, the Japanese, uh, you know, a lot of the history that, that we're going to kind of see in this movie. The thing I wanted to pinpoint was, uh, you notice like, uh, these incursions into China, uh, that the Japanese are making and also like the, the possibility that they might, uh, you know, that they've taken also Manchuria and might go into Siberia. Right. The really in the the really interesting thing about this shit is that the arm the Japanese army was out of control in this period of history and and in the years leading up to this it was like each of the generals just kind of like did their own fucking thing. <laughs> like there wasn't any like the whole like Japanese imperialism thing is is really weird in that it's like kind of I don't want to say accidental but it's not it's not part of a plan it's it's literally like just one general that has an army saying like oh I'm just going to go take this territory and then you know gaining a lot of like glory and honor for doing that and then the other generals getting jealous and saying, well, you know what? I'm going to go take this territory because I want to be in this spot. <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. Did you know this about these fuckers? No, but that does sound probably maybe uh, some I guess, spillover from the you know warring states. You know, I think so. I mean, I, I hate I don't want to get too deep into the psychology right. of, of the Japanese mind because I'm not you know, I'm not a scholar on the subject, but I agree. Like that's, that's my first impulse is to think of it that way. Um, we even see that uh, there's a scene in the movie where some Japanese political officials are, you know, conferring and like, you know, it, do we have, do we have anybody that the army will listen to? And they're basically like, uh, yep. Nope. They're just, <laughs> they're just out there doing their shit. Yeah. <laughs> and like the country was just being kind of like dragged in 
along this uh, path of kind of accidental imperialism by the egos of individual Japanese generals. Um, even in the final years of World War II, according to, again, I'm, I'm listening to the, to the uh, hardcore history episode about that. Uh, even then, it was extremely difficult to figure out who was in charge of making military decisions. You know, the Navy was not, uh, the Navy and the Army did not like each other. Um, we see that, you know, we see a lot of factionalism in this movie where, you know, there's, there's, uh, people, you know, with guns and, and with organization that are like super pro emperor and that are like, uh, you know, we have to kill the prime minister and it's just like, like politically it's, it's a fucking mess. Um, and that factors really strongly into the story in that, um, like the Nazis really like, even, even people in Japan had trouble figuring out like what is going on, (laughs) like what's Japan going to do next. The Nazis definitely, I mean, wanted to know, but couldn't figure it out. Right. Like even the ones that were based in Tokyo. And that's a large part of like uh, how I think Sorge and his main source, Ozaki, were successful were simply by being really knowledgeable uh, on the topic. I mean, they didn't know everything, but they knew a lot more than the Nazis knew. And so when the Nazis perceived Sorge and Ozaki's... Uh, you know, experience and and knowledgeability, it was very natural for them to turn to them and say, what, what, what do you know? Like, please explain this to me. We see a bunch of scenes, right? In the movie where uh, our guy, our uh, Nazi guy, Otto, Uh uh, is coming to Sorge and saying like, you know, like, I I don't know. There's a big fucking, like, people are shooting at, uh, you know, other people and we have no idea what's going on. What, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> well, I think that that that's kind of how he put his place in. He didn't really like squeeze himself into situations. He kind of was just so knowledgeable just being a journalist in Shanghai and in Tokyo. Well, that well, he got sent to Tokyo, but just because he was able to determine so much information from his contacts in Shanghai, uh, it, it's what made him juicy both to to the Nazis and to the Russians. I mean, I feel like um, you know both like Sergei for sure. Like he doesn't he doesn't ever actually need to actively try to infiltrate. He just needs to be in place and know what's going on. And they come to him. Yeah. And they ask him what's going on. And in the process of asking him what's going on, and when they get like good answers and good intelligence, that inspires them to, you know, delve further and ask him. And uh, at some level, you know, asking these questions and using him as a source of information necessarily regards them telling him what they're thinking and what their concerns are. 
Um, Ozaki is as well. Well, I, I would, um, we might be getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. Um, I, I wanted to talk about Sergey's past before this, like, and how he, and, and, and how he gets to this situation. Um, he's, uh, he's got a Russian mom and a German dad. He was technically born on Russian soil. I think he, his dad moved him back to Berlin when he was like five. Mm-hmm. Um, he described his father as having, uh, fierce, fiercely nationalist and imperialist views, which he shared as a young man. Uh, and that was probably one of the reasons why he enthusiastically uh, volunteered to serve uh, Germany's military in World War I. Uh, I believe he was uh, wounded three times. Uh, Iron Cross, second class. But um, it was while he was recuperating from his wounds, reading Das Kapital, he just, I don't know, just decided to be a communist. He was convinced by uh, by Marx. There is also the fact that his great uncle, whom Sergei mistakenly believed to be his grandfather, had been a, an associate of Marx and Engels. That is one of the things I feel like goes into the... Uh, I, I feel in, like in the modern age, that's something that would have shown up in your background report. Uh-huh. But I, I feel like this is a, a, how do I say it, a more innocent age of espionage where maybe people didn't mm, think to uh, research that deeply into the family tree. And when I say this, too, I I know that, okay, so... I know that his great uncle had been an associate of Marx and Engels. I don't know if Sergei knew that or not. So I don't know if it actually influenced him. Right. But uh, with his uh, communist, his new communist beliefs in hand, he was recruited as an agent for Soviet intelligence. Uh, he spent uh, He spent time in Frankfurt. And Moscow and the United Kingdom. Uh, he was instructed as a as an agent of the GRU. He was instructed to go to these places and study and give reports on the status of nascent leftist or communist movements. But he was always instructed to not associate with any of them. And this gets me some plus five points. And I'm calling it my number one best. He also does this in Tokyo as well. Because, I mean, even when he does get to Tokyo, which is the main focus of the film, like there is an underground communist party in Tokyo. Right. He could have relied he could have reached out to them and relied on them for information and support but he doesn't he's yeah because that's like a huge red flag and uh um i'm glad you pointed that out because that actually made my number two best tradecraft 
And didn't he make like a, a a point about that in Shanghai to Ozaki, like to cut off all communist ties or something? He does. He does. Absolutely. It's 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 very good tradecraft. You know, like um, it's kind of like I don't know. It's 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 keeping a distance, a proper distance and perspective, and not getting entangled. Um, even though like a uh, possibly less smart people, I think would have easily given into the impulse to reach out to those people for, you know, allies, you know, you're yeah. on the same side, but right. they were smart enough to say, Nope, never right. just, uh, instead you're, you know, at some point, uh, you know, he was sent to, uh, Germany instructed to join the Nazi party. And there, like, he was very enthusiastic about um, reaching out to and making connections within the Nazi party. But, uh, wow. yeah, communists, fellow communists were just absolutely, like, just off limits to him. Really good. Really good. Actually, I actually wanted to point out my number two worst tradecraft. Let's hear um, it. Uh, Ozaki in Shanghai met that woman that was uh, part Native American, part Japanese, I think. And she wrote this, like, very well-written, very well-acclaimed communist type of uh, piece of literature, I guess I'd call it. Right. Agnes Agnes Smedley. I just want to throw her name out there. Agnes Uh, Smedley, yeah. mm -hmm. And uh, he, like begged her to let him translate her her book into Japanese, uh, which um, I wanted to mark as my number two worst tradecraft. I understand because at that point he was just in banking and kind of just feeding information to Sorge. But at some point, Sorge made it clear that they needed to cut off their ties and he still went ahead and published the book under, I mean, under a pen name, but everybody knew his pen name. And it was... Kind of, I mean, it didn't really be, become his downfall later, but it was mentioned, and I would say that's a big red flag to not uh, want to kind of hang up yourself, you know? Uh, yeah. Right, yeah. I mean, I would I would say, you know, I mean, history is history, but I would, I would say it's minus five points that when the Japanese uh, did, I mean, I guess maybe it didn't cross the desk of the, Kempetai necessarily, but it's something that I think they should have followed up on. Yeah, when when they did uh, find out that he had had a direct hand in uh, putting this, you know, uh, bringing this very pro-communist message to a Japanese audience. Absolutely, and um, they they, they kind of just glanced over it in like a two-minute scene. They're like, "Oh, well, he did do this." Well, whatever. He does all this other stuff. He's fine. Like, <laughs> yeah. And did you notice, uh, though? I, I, you know, I had uh, flagged a, a little plus by points in Shanghai, and this is before he had made the translation. But when he got his job uh, at the Japanese newspaper in Shanghai, you know, there was a guy from the Kempetai who is just dragging through and just looking over his desk and noticing the book and saying like, Hey, what's, what's this all about? Right. (laughs) I guess it adds more to your point about like where everybody was not paying attention 
and, and a lot of it was just kind of like, well, since no one's paying attention, we might as well just get going. <laughs> There's a lot here that I don't think would have flown, like wouldn't fly in, in the cold war era. Right. Um, <laughs> for sure. Uh, but um, yeah. And it's also, you know, important to note that, you know, uh, let's see, Sorge wasn't just posing as a German journalist. He was an active German journalist who right. really knew his shit and was yeah. publishing stuff. You know, like there's people he'll meet in Tokyo, Germans that, that will say like, oh, my God, I read your I read your article, your essay about blah, blah, blah. I was very impressed. You know, like he was an, you know, it's it's not a case of like, I'm going to go in here like I'm a spy and I'm going to go in here and say my cover is, mm, oh, I don't know. I'll say I'm a journalist. Right. <laughs> no, he, you know, he really was. He was constantly working. You see him too, like typing like late into the night constantly. Yeah. And, um, and also, you know, becoming knowledgeable, just really knowledgeable about, all sorts of aspects of like uh, agriculture, for instance, I think was an interesting thing that he was an expert on Japanese agriculture, which I think that sort of thing just like served him really, really well that like, it's a case of like, uh, you know, when you're looking at his cover story, it's a case of like, it's not just a cover story. He really is what he claims to be. Right. <laughs> That said, in Tokyo, he was uh, apparently kind of famous for recklessly riding his motorcycle all around the Japanese countryside uh, in a way that, according to Wiki, everyone viewed as almost suicidal. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, an American reporter who knew him later wrote that he created the impression of being a playboy uh, the antithesis of a keen and dangerous spy, like just, you know, just this like kind of like I think his cover was like kind of a Hunter S. Thompson-esque kind right. of like, you know, I'm just going to drink all night and file my, you know, file my stories to the head office, to the newspaper, you know, just under deadline. And then as soon as that's done and I get my paycheck, I'm going to get drunk and ride my motorcycle around. Ah! And I'm going to have a lot of girlfriends. You're right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. I guess that's plus by points. I can't tell. Like, well, I mean, you know, I, I can't tell if that was something he was putting off as like intentionally kind of like just being like kind of flamboyant to throw off suspicion or if that was just his nature. It is kind of hard to tell in the film. Uh, he does have that one line towards the end where he's kind of like lamenting, where he's just like, I left my wife behind and I lied to a Japanese woman who loved me dearly and blah, blah, blah. But that could have just been his like, you know, uh, I got caught guilt. You know what I mean? Uh, so you, you're right. It's kind of hard to tell if he was putting up the front or if he actually was like the the live fast, die young type of type of character right and just you know just getting lucky <laughs> so yeah again uh like we said like you know he 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 i don't want to say he fails up i 
like failing upward is not the right term. He just kind of, like we said, like just does his job really well to the point where he is noticed and the Germans want to, you know, pull him into their circle. It doesn't ever seem like he, you know, sat down and made a plan. Like I'm going to do this and this and this to gain their trust. Yeah. Uh, He just like happened to be, you know, and he's got that, you know, that iron cross, which (laughs) I think was, I think this is, I think this is yours to talk about, right? Yeah. I, I, I wanted to point this out as my number one best trade craft. Um, not, and it's not just him. I, Ozaki, people were like begging Ozaki to work for them. People were begging Sorge to work for them. He was just so good at his job. And as a journalist that people wanted him to feed them information and like, they didn't even have to try and flip him, you know? And, and just the fact that he was a world one, one German hero is always going to look good to like, you know, the brass. Right. And he's, he's already getting all this information from Moscow. He gets noticed by the Japanese government and by the Nazi government at the German embassy. And they're like, please come work for us. We need you to work for your country. Oh, you know, I don't know. Well, I guess I could, you know, like, like you're right. He didn't really like plan this out, but he was just so good at his trade as, at his, you know, I guess we'll call it a surface job. We're not even sure if he planned that out or not, but he was so good at it on top of his trade craft of keeping the secret of who he was that he got recruited by, you know, the opposing factions. So, I I I I wanted to point that out as my number one best tradecraft was just like he didn't need to do anything. He just got attention by doing a good job and and then was begged by like the higher ups to come help them out. And then he really played it. Like I love when when Ozaki and like Sorge meet each other in business meetings, like they're introduced. They're like Oh right, yeah, they, yeah. They, they act like they don't know each other or they're like kind of acquainted, you know. You know, here they are like pretty much like blood comrade type of thick and through like thickest thieves type right, of thing. Because, because they've been they've been working together on the sly. They have a relationship, but they're keeping that super on the down low. Like right. they're they're taking trains like way out into the countryside oh. just to have like a little five minute conversation, like you know they don't have uh you know a, a public relationship at all but but eventually like their their paths do cross and they get introduced to each other <laughs> right and they're like um, oh hi i like your work you know <laughs> hey like it's nice to meet you or whatever you know like very good werewolf game mhm oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh but yeah his uh his uh his status as a world war one German war hero uh, definitely opens a lot of doors for him just without him even having to knock. Right. Big time. Um, he, uh, you know, the, the guy Otto, you know, his, his, his super German friend, mm-hmm. um, that guy, like I, I, in the wiki, I saw like, you know, that guy even submitted, reports to his bosses back in Germany that essentially Sorge had written. 
and they were so good that they were earning auto promotions. And mm-hmm. so that even like fed his ego enough to pull Sorge in even tighter. You know, he was really grateful for what he perceived Sorge to be doing for him. Right. And at the point where um, there's a, there's, it looks like there was a brief period. So Otto is a colonel. Uh, when Sergei first shows up in in Tokyo, uh, the the colonel is not the head of the embassy. But there's a brief period where the the actual ambassador had resigned, and the colonel was temporarily appointed the head of the embassy. And during that period, uh, he took it in, on himself to, um, you know, give Sergei like all the access. <laughs> you know, and to help him get his get his Nazi card, right? Which I guess I guess it's weird he hadn't gotten that during his operations in Berlin, but <laughs> at least in the movie, like there's a point where, like, you know, he's super proud to like announce to his friend because you know, oh, there's paperwork we got to do, blah blah blah. But he's super proud when he gets to like announce to his friend, like, hey, buddy, guess what? I pulled some strings. You're officially a Nazi now. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, and to give him, um, you know, the access, which, at least in the movie, Sergei, like, wastes no time with that access, uh, you know, uh, jumping into offices and and taking photographs of classified documents. Um, He's still got the big cameras, the big 1940s cameras, instead of the the little... (laughs) easily concealable uh, pocket cameras that we're used to seeing uh, in Cold War movies. But as is, I, and I wanted to mention this part, like, I, I guess maybe we'll keep coming back and forth to it, but I didn't super feel like this was a spy movie in a lot of parts. But this was one of them. Like where yeah. he's sneaking in <laughs> and hiding behind a shade, and you know, and there's a little bit of like, oops, you know, oh, she came in, the secretary came in, oh, god damn it, I left my camera on the desk. Is she gonna notice it? <laughs> dun dun dun. Yeah. Um, there's there's really very few of these nods to like kind of like, you know, dramatic tension or really any kind of sense of danger. Yeah, like we had said, a lot of it was just kind of like, well, no one's really paying attention, you know. Um, we didn't, we, we didn't really get to. I mean, like, was that that was the the brush pass where he's riding the motorcycle? Mm-hmm. That was like what, like two seconds. Um, well, that, that's at the end of a little montage, I think. Yeah, <laughs> like it, like I think like we saw like two or three brush passes, and then the final one is like him just. Yeah, you describe it. Go ahead. Yeah, he's just on a motorcycle and drives by this car and someone just hands him a thing. Yeah, there was another one where, uh, oh, do you have a light? And they do the thing where you can match the lit cigarette to the unlit cigarette. And as they're doing that, the guy puts something in his pocket. You know, there's a. I, it, it kind of makes me feel like Shinoda was trying to not make it a super jazzy spy film. And this is kind of like a, yeah, here, they do a little bit of spy stuff. But that's not the story we're telling. We're telling the story about this person that, like, 
you know, had a huge impact during World War II. And like all that he kind of accomplished to kind of bring down Germany and Japan, you know, which I think is kind of ironic considering like his, his whole like lament when like, you know, he, his whole goal was to spread communism, but he really just, he, he, he did something really big by helping stopping the spread of uh, fascism and, and the Nazi rule. Did he though? Really? I'm going to hold judgment on that till the end. Okay. <laughs> uh, I didn't really have anything else to say about the Nazis. I I don't know. Like you, sometimes I know you'll um, I don't know. You'll flag some, and and you've mentioned uh, you know, uh, Sergey's wandering dick, uh, yeah. <laughs> a, a couple times. Uh, did you have Did you have any uh, thoughts on you know him sleeping with his buddy's wife there? I, I mean, like, yeah, it's kind of messed up, but it fit the character. I don't, like, that's why I'm, like, I'm really not sure if he was intending to do this to keep his cover or if it was just him to kind of, like, ease the pain about being from away from his wife. The one thing I will say is he wasn't, like, sleazy, like we've pointed out in a lot of the old Bond films where, like, I felt that he was, I mean, yeah, he was sleazy as in he was, like, sleeping around with a bunch of women you know, but I didn't feel like he, he was kind of taking advantage. Like, like he wouldn't rub up on him and be like, aha, you, you definitely want this. It was more like, well, maybe, maybe it's just, we didn't see those parts. We just, well, we just true. see the aftermath. We just see the naked lady in his bed. Well, no, well, we see the setup. Like when he first meets, uh, crap, I forgot the, his, his Japanese girlfriend, she's kind of like at, the it's like his day of celebration and his friend sets it up and you know he's not like like touchy feely on her they're just kind of having a conversation and she she's the one that kind of makes the moves she was like well i could i could be your friend you know type of thing and then the the dude's wife you know he's very like look i don't want your husband to find out about it and she's like oh i told him he doesn't care you know, whatever she like, they're the ones that are kind of like initiating a lot of this stuff, you know, but it wasn't like sleazy fantasy, like they're like wooing over him. It was very kind of like believable, you know what I mean? Um, but I, I don't know. Uh, I mean, obviously, I mean, like, obviously, like, I don't think it's okay that he's sleeping with dude's wife and he's kind of cheating on his wife himself, especially since she's pregnant. Um, but whatever. I just didn't think it was like bun sleazy. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 I'm cool with that. That seems like a good place to cut it as the end of part one. We've talked about the history that leads up to the events of the film, as well as Sergei's relations with his German contacts. In part two, we'll be talking about the operations of Sergei and his Japanese contacts, as well as giving a final debriefing of the film. Um, while you're waiting, please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. But you know what really helps us out? Mention this podcast to a friend that you think might like it. That is really the best way to get the word out. The preceding transmission sample for songs Ice Cold by Audio Nautics. Enter the party by Kevin McLeod and sound effects from freesound.org. Attributions and links are found at spieslikeus.net. Editing by Todd Hostetler.